0: From Plato to Platonism, Chapter 3, Reading the Dialogues Platonically. If we are going to give ownership of all the doctrines in the dialogues to Plato, the elements of Er platonism and the positive responses to them, then we are going to have to face the question of whether Plato's thought developed in any way. We have already seen that he may have changed his mind about the possibility of Acrecia. He may also have changed his mind about the relation between the philosopher and the statesman, the nature of pleasure, the need for a superordinate idea of the good, the extent of the realm of forms, indeed, whether separate forms exist at all, the relation of forms to numbers, the part of the soul that is immortal, as opposed to the entire soul, the nature of the correct philosophical method, the relation of the soul to the body, and the nature of emotions, This list is not intended to be exhaustive. Given Plato's preferred way of communicating his philosophical views, there is an almost irresistible tendency to try to sort out these hypothetical changes in his views along something like a developmental trajectory. That is, since we have to work so hard in ferreting out the position being maintained, it would help considerably if we could discover that that position was a revision or repudiation of an earlier version. Another reason for the allure of developmentalism is that, at one level, it seems obviously true. It can hardly be supposed that whenever Plato first created a dialogue with the character Socrates, he already had in mind all the detailed acclaims that flow through the entire corpus. Moreover, with the founding of the Academy in 387, or thereabouts, one must suppose that the regular opportunity to discuss his views with others presented Plato with questions and problems that he was naturally inclined to consider. It is not unreasonable that, prodded by such challenges, ideas occurred to him that had not occurred before. It hardly needs to be added that with the arrival of Aristotle and his association with Plato over the last 20 years or so of the master's life, Plato was, shall we say, inspired, to put it in the most neutral manner, to come at some of his central concerns in ways that could not be found in works written earlier. It will be noted that all of the above putative developments can be accounted for within the ambit of Ur-Platonism. Even a reconsideration of the range of forms or the exact meaning of separation need not entail a wavering of commitment to Ur-Platonism. In fact, if the arguments of the last chapter are thought to be at least somewhat plausible, there is not a shred of evidence that Plato ever developed regarding his fundamental oppositions, or antis. This is the unanimous opinion of the Platonists of antiquity. When, though, we do compile a list of issues on which Plato's precise views are not incontrovertibly clear, we can begin to see the origin of the various versions of Platonism. For example, the nature of the soul, the relations existing among the entities within the intelligible realm, and the nature of cognition are not unequivocally determinable from axioms derived from Er-Platonism. Some versions of Platonism are constructed by giving greater weight to an argument in one dialogue than to one in another. The authority accorded to Plato for having revealed the best, that is, most complete and most defensible, version of Platonism, does not preclude the opting for some specific claims that do actually contradict what Plato says in one dialogue, if not contradicting what he says in another. In the light of deep puzzlement about how to arrive at a non-question-begging developmental picture of Plato's thought, Many scholars have striven to construct a chronology of the dialogues based on some criterion other than philosophical. The preferred method is stylometric analysis. This involves an attempt to discover significant, albeit subtle, shifts in Plato's style of Greek composition, shifts that, owing to their subtlety, are likely to be largely unconscious. The method has been much refined over the last century, since its inception, particularly with the invention of computer-assisted analysis. The results are neither surprising nor particularly enlightening. That is, even assuming their reliability, they do not begin to settle the larger philosophical issues motivating developmentalism. See the magisterial Studies in Platonic Chronology, reprinted in Thesleth, 2009, whose skepticism about the chronological ordering of the dialogues based on an exhaustive survey of over 100 years of attempts is a salutary counterpoint to the blithe assumptions of the early-middle-late chronologists. Developmentalism of various sorts is to be distinguished from Unitarianism, the view that there is no change in doctrine across the dialogues. Just as there are, of course, many versions of developmentalism, so there are many versions of Unitarianism. The Unitarianism of those who hold that the dialogues are the sole locus of Plato's philosophy is substantially different from the Unitarianism of those who hold that the so-called unwritten teachings are the locus of Plato's philosophy, and the dialogues serve only as uh, only a protreptic function in relation to these. I will deal with the Unitarianism of those who hold that there are no doctrines in the dialogues in the section below, titled, Plato the Artist, Plato the Philosopher, and the proponents of the unwritten teachings in Plato's Self-Testimony. Plato and Developmentalism Here I I address developmentalism generally. None of the versions of this view with which I am familiar, suggests that Plato developed out of or into a commitment to Er Er-Platonism, although the version that Socraticists tend to embrace yields an early Plato whose philosophical commitments are obscure. All versions of developmentalism try to divide the dialogues into early, middle, and late phases. Since we have nothing like a certain chronology for the dialogues, a hypothetical chronology is made to follow by immediately... uh, Immediate inference from a developmental ordering. Thus, for instance, if the tripartitioning of the soul is supposed to be a development out of a unified psychology, then Republic is supposed to have been written later than Phaedo or Protagoras. Since Phaedrus seems to assume a tripartite soul, albeit in a myth, it is supposed to have been written later than Republic. Since Timaeus explicitly mentions the immortal part of the tripartite soul, It must, too, not only assume tripartition, but be later than republic, which does not unambiguously affirm the immortality of only one part of the tripartite soul. With respect to forms, developmentalists generally hold, partly, on the basis of Aristotle's testimony, that Plato separated the forms, whereas Socrates did not. So, dialogues are early if they contain explicit or implicit reference to supposedly unseparated forms, but middle if they discuss separate forms. Thus, the dialogues without separate forms seem to coincide with the aporetic dialogues, which, for the Socraticists, represent Socratic philosophy, but for other developmentalists, uh, represent the early phase of Plato's development. For developmentalists, Parmenides represents something of a watershed. In this dialogue, the hypothesis of forms is attacked, albeit by Parmenides himself the and his disciple Zeno. Socrates, a very young Socrates, is cast as the defender of the hypothesis. In one version of developmentalism, these Eleatic attacks are, for Plato, decisive, and subsequent to Parmenides, he abandoned the hypothesis of separate forms in favor of some other realistic theory of universals, perhaps something that is supposedly akin to an Aristotelian theory. In another version, Parmenides does not mark Plato's abandonment of the theory of forms, but rather its modification. The modification is supposedly a response to irrefutable Eleatic criticisms, though it is not always noted that Parmenides himself is made to say that unless his objections can be met, then discourse is completely destroyed. What a theory of forms uh, would be that is not a theory of separate forms is not anywhere clearly articulated. The principal stumbling block for the first version is Timaeus, traditionally thought to be a late dialogue, containing unambiguously an assertion of the existence of separate forms. The bold hypothesis of G.E.L. Owen, To redate Timaeus to the middle period instead of the late period, and hence to remove the impediment to this hypothesis of an abandonment of separate forms in the latter, has not been widely accepted. The main reason brought against Owen's hypothetical redating of Timaeus is that the hypothesis of forms seems to be operating even if not prominently, in other dialogues that Owen himself agrees are to be dated later than Parmenides, including Sophist, Statesman, and Philebus. The principal stumbling block on the second version is the difficulty in explaining exactly what modifications to the hypothesis of separate forms are supposed to answer the objections to that hypothesis in the first part of Parmenides. This difficulty is no doubt exacerbated by the obvious fact that the exercise that is supposedly going to lay down the principles for answering the objections consists of the second part of Parmenides, perhaps the most obscure part of the Platonic corpus. How this exercise will yield the principles for modifying the hypothesis that the young Socrates defends in the first part of the dialogue has never been satisfactorily explained. For example, a standard diagnosis of the problem raised by Parmenides in the so-called third man argument is that it assumes that Socrates is committed to the self-predication of forms. Thus, the form of largeness must be itself large, making it apt for including with other large things, thus requiring another form of largeness over and above them. A non-developmental view, or a Unitarian, will want to say that self-predication was no part of the character of forms in the first place, in which case Plato does not need to alter his account to exclude this assumption. A developmentalist will want to say that self-predication follows from separation, in which case the solution to the problem is to recast the account of forms minus the offending metaphysical claim. Forms then become something like universals whereas it is perhaps the case that a separately existing form of largeness must be paradigmatically large. It makes no sense to say that the universal largeness is large. The problem here is, once again, Timaeus, which seems committed to separation, as well as the other dialogues mentioned above in which there is not a shred of evidence that separation is abandoned in favor of a realistic theory of universals. Regarding the apparent conflicts or tensions, or even contradictions, in the dialogues thought to be fodder for a developmentalist story, I think the evidence is inconclusive. One part of the reason for this may well be the nature of the dialogue. For the most part, as for example in Sophist, Socrates only adduces the metaphysical apparatus immediately required to solve the problem posed in the dialogue. In this case, how, given that the sophist is a purveyor of falsity, or non-being, can he really have a metier, after all? How, in short, is it possible for non-being to be the something that is supposedly the sophist's stock in trade? There is, in fact, a good deal of metaphysical apparatus needed to solve this problem, though not every possible consideration regarding forms, including the superordinate idea of the good. So the question of whether at the time of writing Sophist Plato was still committed to this idea and to all that he said about forms in Republic including the maximally wide-ranging criterion for positing forms in the first place cannot be answered definitively. It is reasonable to think that Plato did not express everything he in fact believed at the time of writing each dialogue. It is equally reasonable to think that At the least, Plato wrote some dialogues believing that some things he had said previously were said incautiously, precipitously, or without sufficient precision. The prospects for developmentalism, providing us with illuminating results regarding the ultimate version of Platonism, embraced by Plato himself, are, therefore, dim. This is not, of course, to say that developmentalism is necessarily false. I wish to argue, however, that What is called for is another approach to dealing with the evidence that inspires developmentalism. Let us begin with the consideration that there is no evidence that Plato wrote any of his dialogues prior to the founding of the Academy. This in itself is not a particularly important point, though if true, it does suggest that all of his writings were those of a decidedly mature thinker, at least 40 years of age. My main point, however, is that on the hypothesis of a post-387 or 383 dating for all of the dialogues, we might speculate that they are all in one sense the product of his discussions with colleagues and students of philosophy. With the arrival of Aristotle at the academy about 20 years later, the hypothesis of dialogues reflecting discussions becomes more concrete. For in Aristotle's own works, beginning with his dialogues, onward through his esoteric writings, produced while Plato was still alive, and then for the last 25 years or so of his own life, there is also abundant evidence that he is reflecting ongoing academic discussions. In this regard, the parallels between Plato's dialogues that uh, Plato's dialogues that are probably late and the earliest of Aristotle's writings are particularly striking. We need to keep in mind that it was in Plato's Academy that a technical vocabulary for the expression of versions of Platonism, uh, based, huh. versions of Platonism based, I think, in-er Platonism was being formulated. The vocabulary for making distinctions and formulating arguments regarding being, cognition, causality, emotions, uh, conation, argument, etc., was actually being constructed in the discussions that were occurring daily in the academy. Some of the results of these discussions are found in the dialogues. Some are found in Aristotle's works, including those that are probably early. Sometimes we find Plato shifting his vocabulary, for example, his alteration in the use of the words for desire or appetite, epithumia, from symposium to republic or his shift within Republic regarding the use of the term episteme. In Philebus, we discover a settled vocabulary about how to talk about the emotions, a vocabulary that is taken up by Aristotle in his rhetoric. In Plato's various accounts of causality, we find a shifting vocabulary that is finally uh, fixed in Aristotle's physics. In Plato's various accounts of causality, we find a shifting vocabulary that is finally fixed in Aristotle's physics. Plato in Timaeus and elsewhere uses metaphor to discuss what Aristotle eventually expresses in the technical language of hule, or matter. Aristotle's accounts of the types of desire in his Nicomachean Ethics reflect distinctions that are found in the dialogues, though not formally so. Discussions regarding the technical vocabulary of logic begin to get their airing in the second part of the Parmenides, and then uh, are later formalized by Aristotle, beginning with his prior analytics and extending to physics and book Delta of the Metaphysics, containing a philosophical compendium of technical vocabulary. The extremely difficult problem of the relation between the various modes of cognition and the non cognitive properties of organic life. Are treated by Plato mostly metaphorically and with a loose vocabulary, and then expressed formally only by Aristotle in Dianema. Anima. Quote, intellect, nous, is a genus different from soul, psyche. Plato strives in laws to articulate a vocabulary for different kinds of motion, kinesis, wishing to distinguish the motion of thought from any other kind though he is still willing to call that motion. Aristotle invents an entirely new word, energeia, for the motion of thought. This list can be easily extended. What we need to keep in mind is that Plato is quite obviously looser in his terminology than is Aristotle, and that this looseness sometimes leads the reader to conclude that Plato is asserting something different from what he asserts elsewhere. Whereas in fact he is saying the same thing in different words. And the justification for this, if it needs one, is that Plato is in the process of inventing the distinctions and arguments that are being used to express what he takes to be the most solid edifice that can be built on the foundation of Ur Platonism. It is entirely plausible that amid the academic discussions, and especially as a result of Aristotle's uh, critical scrutiny, Plato did alter his view on a number of particular issues, and, even more likely, on how to express a particular position. What we need to keep in mind alongside a discussion of these changes is Plato's unwavering continued uh, commitment to Ur-Platonism, a commitment shared unequivocally by Aristotle. This fluidity in the expression of his thinking at the time of writing one dialogue or another should not be taken as equivalent to an abandonment of systematization altogether. On the contrary, the differing responses to metaphysical, epistemological, and psychological questions found in the dialogues are all undertaken with a systematic goal in mind. This system will, as we will see, be a construction on the basis of the claims composing Ur-Platonism. Accordingly, rather than thinking of later Platonists as systematizing Plato, a view common among scholars of Platonism, we should think of them and Plato as systematizing Ur-Platonism, My main contention is the denial of the claim that a pre-academic set of dialogues needs to be postulated in order to distinguish the Socratic Plato from Plato himself. If we set aside the fictitious Socratic Plato, an alternative hypothesis regarding the composition of the dialogues that fits the evidence better is that all of them, or most of them, were intra-academic exercises. I do think the indirect evidence for this is stronger than any indirect evidence for pre-academic compositions. But the only good reason for preferring my hypothesis over the contrary must be its superiority in accounting for the dialogues themselves, including its answer to the obviously important question of why Plato wrote dialogues in the first place. What I propose is that all the dialogues are, in a sense, occasional pieces— Responding to ongoing discussions in the academy. They are all efforts to express not only Plato's thinking about one issue or another at a specific time, but also the thinking of other members of the academy. The latter sometimes make anonymous appearances as Socrates' interlocutors, expressing objections and philosophical positions that were on the table in the academy. In no sense, then, are the dialogues the exclusive vehicle for the expression of Platonism. As we will see presently, Plato tells us as much himself. On this hypothesis, it is inconceivable that it would have occurred to Plato that anyone would take any one dialogue as self-contained, that is, as exempt from being illuminated by what is said elsewhere. Every single one of these occasional pieces has to be referred to the fluid or ongoing construction of Platonism, the positive side of Ur-Platonism. For this reason, the dichotomy, developmentalism, Unitarianism, is a false one. Plato's Platonism, and the Platonism of all his followers, was continuously developing on the unchanging foundation, that is, Ur-Platonism. The question of why Socrates is the principal interlocutor in almost all the dialogues is harder to answer. We should, I think, only be inclined to the view that there are no dialogues whose unique purpose is to memorialize Socrates or to express his putatively distinctive non-philosophical a non-platonic philosophy. My hypothesis is that Socrates' central role in the dialogues and his actual presence in all the dialogues except laws is explained by Plato's wish to have his Platonism encounter all the actual historical proponents of the views whose contradictories constitute Er er-Platonism. With a little judicious artistry, Plato could bring them all into discussion with Socrates. Perhaps the unique status of laws in this regard is owing to the fact that there really were no giants of practical political philosophy that Plato cared to confront. This hypothesis does not, of course, preclude a secondary aim of memorializing the life of an authentic Platonic hero. But the heroism is to be located for Plato as much in Socrates' personal integrity and independence of mind as in his ethics. In any case, Nowhere do the paradoxes of Socratic ethics appear in the dialogues without the explicit or implicit metaphysical apparatus Plato acquired, probably from Pythagoreans, and then in his own academy. The above hypothesis seems more than merely speculative if we consider that Socrates is the principal interlocutor in dialogues that are, according to all Socraticists, expressive of Platonic philosophy for example, Theotetus and Philebus. It does indeed seem odd that if there were Plato's, if it were Plato's intention to make Socrates the principal interlocutor in the early dialogues in order to have him argue for his own distinctive philosophy, he would not use another principal interlocutor when he wished to propound his own philosophy. The hypothesis that the dialogues should be ordered according as Plato, developed from an expounder of Socratic philosophy to a proponent of his own, is in fact less supported by the evidence than the hypothesis according to which the character Socrates is always a stand-in for the author. This, of course, does not mean that uh, Plato's thought did not develop, but it did not develop in the way that proponents of Socratic philosophy in the dialogues claim Plato the artist, Plato the philosopher. All interpreters of Plato agree that he is more than a philosopher. He is a literary artist as well. All agree that, apart from the letters, he chose to express himself in the form of dramatic dialogues, some of these more intensely or completely dialogic than others. See uh, Schleiermacher, 1836, who is the true originator of the uh, idea that the philosophy is inseparable from the literary form of the dialogues. Theslev 2009, distinguishes five types of dialogue techniques in the Platonic corpus. Question and reply, specifically elenchus, conversation, narrative dialogue approximating monologue, speech or continuous exposition, Thesslev uses these distinctions, along with much else, to try to determine both an absolute and a relative chronology for the dialogues. He has drawn up a table uh, showing how the various techniques are interwoven in each of the dialogues. I will not take up the many complex issues canvassed by Theslev especially that of the likelihood of there being multiple versions of individual dialogues. Assuming that laws is his last work, and of course, thats that it is authentic, he wrote dialogues to the end. Most of these dialogues make Socrates the principal interlocutor. Owing to the nature of these dialogues, their author does not explicitly intrude into the text. This is no more or less the case than for any other author of any literary work. These banal facts have led interpreters and disciples with, a. Uh, with one obvious question, how, if at all, can the philosophy of their author be extracted from them? Most ancient interpreters, including Aristotle, seem to have simply assumed that in the dialogues, Socrates, and in a few cases, other leading interlocutors were representatives of Plato's views, and therefore that the dialogues were a perfectly appropriate place to look for these. It is not that they were impervious to the literary qualities of the dialogues. It is just that these provide no more than a colorful background for the expression of philosophy. If Socrates is located by the author of the dialogues in the agora, or in the countryside, or at the gymnasium, or at a private party, these locations simply offer a setting for argument. In addition to the basic literary form of Plato's writings, there are literary forms within the dialogues, including myths and rhetorical displays. Although these could be subjected to independent analysis, according to their own literary criteria, in antiquity they were generally brought within the ambit of a supposed aim, or scopos, of the dialogue. A myth, for example, was somehow to serve this aim. The nature of the aim was, of course, open to interpretation. There was no suggestion that Plato's actual intention or aim was revealed otherwise than through the dialogue itself. At the extreme opposite of the view that the dialogues were a vehicle for Plato's philosophy is the view that the literary nature of the dialogues precludes the ascription of philosophical positions to their author. This view does not deny that there are arguments and claims made in the dialogues. How, after all, could it? But it does deny that Plato intends for us to attribute them to him. Specifically, the literary integrity of the dialogues precludes the justifiability of going outside the boundaries of a particular dialogue in the sense of making inferences about the philosophy contained therein. It is a crucial feature of this view that fidelity to literary integrity not only precludes making inferences from one dialogue to the philosophical position of their author, but it also precludes the use of one dialogue to interpret the philosophy of another. This point is crucial because it is agreed by all parties to this dispute that no single dialogue, not Republic, nor Timaeus, or Parmenides, or any other, completely expresses Plato's views on any single significant subject, much less his overall philosophical position. Not even dogmatists of the strictest observance deny that the literary form of Plato's writings guides the composition in a way that precludes anything like the comprehensive exposition and defense of a philosophical system. Socrates's interlocutors are often not philosophers, or at least not skillful philosophers, and so not likely to appreciate the intricacies of philosophical argument given at length. Even when his interlocutors are philosophers, they and Socrates are always focused on the solution to a particular problem. To particular problems. A constraint that, were it not observed, would turn the dialogue into something very different. Let us briefly consider two examples. The first is from Phaedo. In the course of his uh, autobiography, Socrates offers his simple hypothesis that it is, say, the form of largeness or the form of beauty or the form of two-ness that explains the fact that something is large or beautiful or two or not, uh, uh, not the material out of which these are constructed. He then adds that when asked to give an account of one of these hypotheses, that is, examining its consequences, one would adduce another hypothesis until one arrived at something adequate. Many scholars have supposed that this something adequate is another hypothesis of the sort that each form is supposed to be. Another hypothesis of the sort that each form is supposed to be. It is indeed difficult to see how hypothesizing another simple form would be adequate for answering the objections that are supposed to arise from the consequences of the original hypothesis that may be discordant with one another. And yet, we have in Republic forms hypothesized by mathematicians and to claim that these hypotheses are inadequate. By contrast, dialecticians use these hypotheses as real hypotheses, that is, as stepping stones or a launching point until they reach something unhypothetical, that is, the first principle of all, the idea of the good. Given that this unhypothetical first principle of all is, among other things, the source of the knowability of forms, the obvious question is why one would be forbidden from using the Republic passage, that too speaks about forms as hypotheses, and appeals to an unhypothetical principle of all, to supply what is missing from these hypotheses. To interpret the otherwise unintelligible passage in Phaedo, the only reason that is given for this extraordinary restriction is that it would violate the integrity of the literary composition. But, then, unless we are given another reason why violation of this integrity for philosophical purposes is illicit, the reasoning seems circular. I am aware of no such additional reason ever being adduced. The second example comes from Timaeus. Timaeus introduces his discussion of the receptacle of becoming and its contents with the caveat that his account is uh, his account at this time will be limited. That is, he is not going to speak about a first principle or principles of all of all things owing to the uh, to the difficulty Uh, of all things owing to the difficulty of giving an account of these according to their present method of exposition. Considering that Timaeus is dramatically situated the day after the discussion of Republic, one would have thought it fairly obvious that the reference to a first principle of all is a reference to the idea of the good, so designated in Republic. But what about principles in the plural? Republic mentions no such first principles. And yet, Aristotle does, claiming that Plato reduced forms to the one, the great and the small, or the indefinite dyad. If, in fact, the Timaeus passage is alluding to the possibility that the idea of the good may itself need to be conceptualized as the one, and, along with the indefinite dyad, needs to be included as a first principle. Not only would the arbitrary limitations on interpretation imposed by the literary theory be breached, but more important, the interpretation of Timaeus itself would be enormously enriched. For that, dialogue tells us that the demiurge brought intelligibility to the cosmos by using shapes and numbers. Assuming that the one and the indefinite dyad are in the background, the origin of the shapes and numbers is readily understandable. Without this background, the passage makes little sense, and is for that reason usually simply ignored. For if these shapes and numbers are only some of the forms, which is presumably what one would want to argue if one thought that the mathematical reduction of forms was an Aristotelian fiction, then the demiurge is not, contrary to what is said in the text, ungrudging in his desire that the cosmos should be maximally endowed with intelligibility. In Phaedo and Timaeus, then, we have two dialogues whose relations to things said in Republic, and indeed to things said by Aristotle about Plato, would appear obvious unless one were in the grips of a theory that uh, the motivations for which are perhaps more obscure than these relations by contrast, if republic helps explain what is said in phaedo and is itself helped to be explained by what is said in Timaeus and in Aristotle's testimony, then Platonism must be detached from the dialogues, not of course in so far as these are a witness to it but only insofar as these are supposed to contain it exclusively. And according to the literary interpretation, even this uh, jejun result is unavailable, since on its, dial- uh, on its showing, dialogic Platonism gets shattered into as many authentic dialogues as one cares to postulate. The resolve to take the literary form of Plato's work seriously is completely empty, of course, if it does not show us how either that form absolutely precludes philosophical analysis or somehow shapes it. The view that to, uh, that the literary form precludes ascription of the philosophy in the dialogues to Plato is equally empty unless it can give some plausible account of what presumably literary function that philosophy serves. To say that the function is protreptic will hardly do, for no one, including no one in antiquity, denied that the dialogues have a protreptic function. What they most firmly did deny, however, is that the presentation of the philosophical argument was not itself serving such a function. Accordingly, focus on the protreptic function of the dialogue is vacuous, unless This is combined with the claim that the author is intentionally distancing himself from the philosophical claims made therein. Then, the philosophy becomes, as it were, orphaned, attributable to no one in particular. On this view, there is no more reason to ascribe to Plato any element of Er Er-Platonism rather than the opposite of that element. Plato may as well have been a materialist as an anti He may have actually agreed with Protagoras that man is the measure of all things rather than opposed him. It seems to me that Aristotle's testimony, if nothing else, gives the lie to this interpretation. For nowhere are we led to believe that Plato does not subscribe to the views put in the mouth of Socrates. On the contrary, Aristotle repeatedly refers to things said by the literary Socrates as claims made by Plato. In short, Aristotle does not treat Plato as a sophist. The suggestion that he was one seems to be completely gratuitous. More promising, perhaps, is the view that the literary form of Plato's writings must merely shape our view of the philosophy contained therein. As reasonable as this hypothesis might seem, no one who holds it has, to my knowledge, ever shown how exactly it is to yield tangible results. That Socrates responds to his interlocutors in a particular way, or that his interlocutors respond to him in a particular way, does not seem to be the sort of thing that would in itself make us hesitate to take an argument offered on its uh, own terms On this view, the Socrates of the Dialogues is a literary character, and as such, he is all and only what the author wants him to be. If he says he is ignorant, then that is what the author wants to uh, convey to the reader. Socrates' famous irony is never expressed in relation to the elements of Ur-Platonism. It is always expressed in relation to the pretensions of his interlocutors, or in relation to his own perceived inadequacies, which include his ignorance about the very specific things he claims to be ignorant of. That Plato had a generally low opinion of many of the people represented in his dialogues hardly needs defending. And this includes, of course, the self-proclaimed intellectual elite of Athenian society. The multifarious ways in which Socrates ridicules and dismisses their unreflective claims certainly enhance our conviction that they are, indeed, unreflective and indefensible. This hardly amounts to a basis for undermining our confidence in Plato's commitment to ur or, indeed, to any of the elements of the edifice built on that foundation. What would undermine that confidence would be the inability to adduce the contents of one dialogue on behalf of the interpretation of another. Uh, If the Socrates, who is a literary character in, say, Meno, is fundamentally different from the Socrates, who is a literary character in Phaedo, then we cannot use the latter to illuminate the philosophical claims made in the former. It is, I agree, difficult to separate those cases in which the latter dialogue contains Plato's rethinking of an issue from those that contain his further explication of a position held earlier. In the first case, one would suppose that the latter dialogue, or later dialogue, cannot be used to interpret the earlier. In the second case, there would be no such restriction. But the literary interpretation of the dialogues, insisting on the integrity of each work, does not permit inter-dialogue interpretation. When reading Phaedo, we must arbitrarily burden ourselves with a sort of hermeneutical Alzheimer's disease. A resolve to limit oneself to the experience of each dialogue in its entirety without any uh, dissonance caused uh, by adducing alien doctrines from elsewhere no doubt has a certain austere charm. If However, this approach takes seriously the doctrine in the target dialogue. What is the possible justification for excluding help in its interpretation coming from other dialogues? The response that drawing on such help undermines the appreciation of the literary work is of consequence only if there is doctrine in one dialogue supposedly insulated from critical analysis resting on doctrines from another. If the doctrine in one dialogue is inseparable from the literary form of its presentation, it is a non sequitur to go on to claim that, for this reason, doctrines from another dialogue cannot be adduced on behalf of its interpretation. For to make the doctrine inseparable from the form of its delivery is to make the delivery part of the doctrine. But then this doctrine ought to be apt for illumination provided from elsewhere. For example, if it is held that in a dialogue wherein the subject of knowledge is considered, the real doctrine being conveyed is not the nature of knowledge, but the nature of the communication of knowledge, then what is said elsewhere about this ought to be relevant to this interpretation. Again, if it is held that the doctrine that no one does wrong willingly is shown in the uh, unmovable character of Socrates, then the doctrine of how knowledge affects behavior can be illuminated from elsewhere too. There is no argument, then, or there is no argument that I am aware of that shows that there is something philosophically mistaken in using Republic to help understand Symposium. If Republic is so usable, then the literary interpretation of the dialogues is substantially false. If that interpretation entails the illicitness of such use. No one expects Shakespeare's Hamlet to appear on stage in King Lear to comment on the king's behavior. Yet, Plato's Socrates on numerous occasions makes reference to previous discussions or to issues that were discussed elsewhere. The elsewhere need not necessarily be in other dialogues. What, though, could be the motive for denying the use of what is said in one dialogue to interpret another, unless one starts with the assumption that there is no doctrine to interpret in the first place. For example, at the beginning of of Timaeus, an explicit reference is made to the discussions on the previous day that are contained in Republic. Most scholars assume that Timaeus was written some considerable time after Republic. Whether or not this is the case, the reference to Republic is a clear invitation to the reader to consider at least the political claims in that dialogue as relevant. Consider also the passage in Phaedo that introduces forms as entities similar or familiar to the interlocutors. Or Parmenides's attribution to the young Socrates of a theory of forms discoverable in Phaedo and Republic. Or Theotetus, where Socrates lays down criteria for knowledge, that it must be of what is, uh, what is and infallible, that are intelligible only by adducing their appearance in the context of Republic. Or Philebus, which introduces forms in the language of Parmenides, Finally, consider the example of Symposium and Republic. In the former, Diotima claims in her Discourse on the Mysteries of Love that love of the beautiful is nothing but desire for the good. Other dialogues, including, for example, Meno, have Socrates make the claim that all desire uh, that all desire the good. Republic provides an ontological foundation for this desire and according to Platonists, an explanation of how beauty and good are related. It is one thing to argue that this interpretation is false. It is another to argue that it it is not in principle possible even to use Republic in this way, owing to the literary integrity of symposium. I do not take these cross-references to indicate uh, a particular pedagogical ordering of the dialogues. Far more important is that they indicate that there is a philosophical position of their author that makes its appearance in various ways throughout the dialogues. The more confident one is that material from one dialogue can be used to help interpret another, the more one is committed to the assumption that Plato has a comprehensive philosophical position across or behind the dialogues. The unchanging anchor of this position is, in my view, Er platonism The positive construct on its foundation always appears to us as a work in progress. Taking this together with the Aristotelian evidence, one will, I believe, arrive at the conclusion that the dialogues contain iterations of this positive construct. Developmentalism is true, almost too obviously true. Every dialogue contains evidence of development within the academy regarding uh, the elements of the positive construct. These developments concern technical terminology, conceptual distinctions, methodological experiments, and specific arguments addressing one or more concrete problems. There are, perhaps, substantive developments too, for example, concerning matters like the unity of the virtues, the possibility of incontinence, the embodied and disembodied partitioning of the soul, and the exact nature of knowledge and its intelligible objects. Unitarianism is as true as developmentalism, but the unity is that of Er platonism not a unity in any of the areas just mentioned. Platonism was always open to development within this unified framework. Plato's Self-Testimony There are two passages in the Platonic corpus that are potentially of vital importance for judging all the issues discussed above. These are the passages in Phaedrus 274b6 through 278e3, and in the seventh letter 340b1 to 345c3, in which Plato seems to speak, albeit in the first case through the mouth of Socrates, about his own attitude toward writing. The two passages need to be interpreted together. In the first passage. A number of points are made regarding the value and nature of writing. First, writing does not increase wisdom. It only provides memoranda for oneself. It is inferior to the oral transmission of wisdom. Second, writing cannot enter into dialogue with readers. It cannot defend itself. Rather, it is more like drawing or painting, although actually even more misleading. Third, writing is not serious. To write is analogous to planting a garden of Adonis. Fourth, it requires philosophy to control writing as appropriate for a particular audience. Reading this passage, it is difficult to resist the conclusion that Plato is referring to his own writings, that is, to the Dialogues the idea that the criticisms of writing here refer only to the writings of others is absent any support uh, is absent any supporting evidence without merit so taking these criticisms seriously how should we revise our view of the dialogues if at all the claim that writing is inferior to speech for the transmission of uh, wisdom seems to be in line with what is at least one plausible raison d'etre for the founding of the academy, namely philosophical discussion and research. None of the above points, with the possible exception of the third, are even particularly platonic in their basic import. Certainly, there is no suggestion that the inferiority of writing to speech entails the irrelevance of writing to the wisdom supposedly transmitted orally. Indeed, the claim that writing can serve as um, hoopo uh, hupo, memata? Hupomemata? Indeed, the claim that writing can serve as hoopo memata seems to require their direct relevance. Writing would hardly serve as an aid to memory. If what was written uh, bore no resemblance to what was being re- remembered, the statement of the superiority of oral transmission to writing is taken, along with the passage from the seventh letter, as a major confirmation for the claim of the so-called Tubingen Schule, that the core of Plato's philosophy is to be found in what Aristotle refers to as his unwritten teachings. According to this interpretation, the unwritten teachings focus on the reduction of forms to two ultimate principles, the one and the indefinite dyad. I will have much more to say about these in the context of Aristotle's testimony in the next chapter. The Tübingen Schule maintains that the unwritten teachings are alluded to in numerous passages in the dialogues, although it is not possible to say whether all the dialogues were written by an author who unambiguously embraced these teachings, the above hypothesis that the dialogues were written no earlier than 387 does suggest that if we are to attribute such teachings to Plato, then there is no dialogue from which those teachings may be assumed to be entirely absent. Nevertheless, If the unwritten teachings focus on the reduction of forms to first principles, that still leaves as part of the written teachings the derivation of forms from a first principle, as in Republic, the relations among the forms, as in Phaedo, Parmenides, and Sophist, and the relation between forms, intellect, soul, and the sensible world, as in Timaeus. In other words, the unwritten teachings do not seem to indicate a sort of parallel doctrine, but the last step in an array of doctrines displayed throughout the dialogues. Even on the assumption of unwritten teachings, there is nothing in the Phaedrus passage to lead us to think that the dialogues are, as it were, misdirecting the reader. We have no reason to doubt the conclusion that both the dialogues and the unwritten teachings belong to Plato's Constructive metaphysical response to Er Platonism. Still, the Phaedrus passage, if it is self-referring, makes an unambiguous claim about the relative worth of writing. Platonists and philosophers in antiquity generally had uh, no difficulty in making a distinction between philosophy and philosophical writing, including the writing of Plato. Philosophy as a way of life, bios, including the oral transmission of wisdom through the practice of dialectic, was unquestionably thought to be superior to the written expression of the constitutive principles of that way of life, in Logoi. Accordingly, for Platonists, since Aristotle's testimony regarding the philosophy of Plato was assumed to be substantially accurate, There was no suggestion that the dialogues held a sort of exclusive canonical status for the expression of that philosophy. In a way, Aristotle's testimony held for them an advantage over the dialogues, because that testimony had a systematic purpose lacking in them when considered individually. The passage from the seventh letter presents somewhat different problems, in particular because of doubts about its authenticity, and in part because, if authentic, the discovery of its full import requires a context that is unavailable to us. Like the Phaedrus passage, the letter speaks about the weakness of writing in relation to oral teaching, and about the dangers of writing for the philosophically inept. There is, however, one line that has been thought to invalidate the doctrinal bona fides of the dialogues altogether. Plato says at 341 c. 4 through 5 that he has never written a su- uh, sugrama that expresses his own views. Certainly, the feeble efforts of the tyrant uh, Dionysius to reveal Platonic philosophy, are not to be taken seriously. It has been argued by Thomas Slezak, among others, that the term um, sungrama, um, sungrama should be taken to refer to any sort of writing in prose, as opposed to poetry. If this is the case, then Plato seems to be saying that even his own dialogues do not express his views. The older understanding of this term is that it refers to a treatise, or systematic statement, in which case it would exclude the dialogues. On the one hand, it is difficult even to understand what it would mean for Plato to claim that nothing in the dialogues expresses his own views, even the meta-view, that there is value in writing philosophical dialogues. On the other, why would he claim that no systematic treatise could express exactly what is in the dialogues. After all, that is what scholars have been trying to do for quite a long time. At 344 C 1 through E 2, Plato writes, quote, for this reason, anyone who is seriously studying high matters will be the last to write about them and thus expose his thought to the envy and criticism of men. What I have said comes, in short, to this. Whenever we see a book, whether the laws of a legislator or a composition, um, sungramata, on any other subject, we can be sure that if the author is really serious, this book does not contain his best thoughts. They are stored away with the fairest of his possessions. And if he has committed these serious thoughts to writing, it is because men, not gods, have taken his wits away. To anyone who has followed this discourse and digression, it will be clear that if Dionysius, or anyone else, whether more or less able than he, has written concerning the first and highest principles of nature, he has not properly heard or understood anything of what he has written about. Otherwise, he would have respected these principles as I do, and would not have dared to give them this discordant and unseemly publicity, nor can he have written them down for the sake of remembrance, for there is no danger of their being forgotten if the soul has once grasped them, since they are contained in the briefest of formulas." Several points deserve emphasis. First, this passage explicates Plato's previous remark 341 C4 through five, that there has never been a composition by uh, by him on the matter with which he is seriously concerned. The suspicion or disdain that Plato shows here for writing is in contrast to Phaedrus, uh, focused on the more serious matters three hundred forty four c one through three, the first principles of nature that is in a previous passage three hundred forty one b through e Plato expresses the same view as Phaedrus regarding the weakness of writing in comparison to the oral transmission of wisdom, but here he implies that dionysus um, could not have written his treatise for the sake of remembrance, since the first principles are few and can easily be memorized. This remark seems to provide some context for the similar one in Phaedrus, that is, the rationale for writing as an aid to memory, in that what needs to be remembered is more than a few concise principles. This is certainly what the written dialogues do in their representation or re-creation of substantive discussions in the Academy. Among other things, they reinforce the lesson of the explanatory inadequacies of all non Platonic philosophical positions. That the teachings on first principles are found explicitly in the dialogues, but rather in uh, are not found explicitly in the dialogues, but rather in Aristotle's testimony in regard to Plato's philosophy, in general, supports the authenticity of the remarks in the second letter, and the Phaedrus passage. Still, one might maintain that the more we take the unwritten teachings seriously, the less seriously should we take the putative teachings in the dialogues, and vice versa. In fact, as we will see in the next chapter, the unwritten teachings, so far as these are known, do actually appear in the dialogues though not as a principal subject of investigation. On the hypothesis that the dialogues represent the ongoing discussions in the academy, this is hardly surprising.